0: Good morning. Does everyone have notes? Pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus we may reach into and in. We'll see. I've got some right over here. Sorry. Um. So. Uh, we're we're going to start off in First Timothy I'm, today. I'm going to do the introduction and salutation that uh, Paul has here at the beginning of First Timothy. But, um, we'll get into that and let's pray and. Father, we pray for this lesson, we pray for the teacher, we pray that, that you will give him the words that you want be, to be spoken, we pray for hearts to hear it, and Father, we just pray for your blessing on this time, we pray it on your precious name, amen. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. By command of, our God, of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, I always like to start out with an obvious part of an introduction, the who what, my when and how. So, who wrote 1 Timothy? Pretty easy. It's Paul, Paul formerly Saul of Tarsus, a man who was born of Jewish and, and Greek, and um, that that will come up later. When was it written? Around uh, 64 A.D. Then, to whom was First Timothy written? Well, it's in bold print up there at the top of your chapter. It's written to Timothy, and I think it's important. And it's going to come back up. These are the first epistles written to a person. Up until this point, we had Colossians and Ephesians and Romans. They were written to groups of people. These letters
1: were written to a person and it still made it into the canon of Holy
0: Scripture. Where was First Timothy written? Paul was believed... To be in Macedonia, Macedonia, when he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus when he went to Macedonia. Paul was between his first and second imprisonments when he authored these epistles. I don't know who's going to be teaching when it comes up, but at the end of 2 Timothy, I always revel in the fact we are getting the final words of Paul. The man who had the greatest insight into the doctrines of grace, and in Christ's teachings, there, these are his final words. And these are what he wants us to understand. So, um, I did put a how there. I don't know, I think it can be assumed that it was written with quill and parchment. Uh, <coughs> Why was to 1 Timothy written? I found it interesting that all of Paul's letters, especially Ephesians, where, where uh Timothy was a pastor, were addressing the invisible church. It's addressing the church in general. Up until now, he addressed the church as the bride of Christ. He's now speaking to the local physical church. And uh He's talking about, and I left room for this, the government and order of the local church. The government and order of the local church. This, we are getting into the, the handbook. The pastoral epistles are an hand. Are a handbook for the local church. And I've all, Bennett and I were talking, as you start getting into this study, you realize how rich this is. And I'm only getting through two verses today, really, um, just because there's so much there. There are two key verses to uh, in 1 Timothy here. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.3 As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then 1 Timothy 3.15 If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So I'm going to step out of the outline here for just a second and uh, discuss what the church is. I dare say that the universal church is on hard times now, especially in the Western world. You get in third world countries and you get under the level of the politics and, and the economies the and everything going on and there's, there's a strong church. You look in China, the, the underground church is right And people are dying because of it. Um, so what, what, does, what is church? I'll tell you one of my biggest pet peeves. And you see it all over the place. Does anyone know anyone who says, I don't need to go to church to spend time with God? I bristle. (laughs) Now, are you providentially hindered from going to church? You know, you may have a broken hand. as a good reason to, you know, I'm not going to get out and go to church. Um, you know, you can't drive. You, you're ill. There's things that happen that, that you're providentially hindered. But um, this would be like proclaiming your love for your wife. I love my wife. I just never go home. And you think about it. The church is the bride of Christ. Don't you want to be with your, with your spouse? Every chance you get. Um, I would argue the person doesn't know God at all if they don't want to go to church. An early church father, and early, this is around 200 AD, uh, Cyprian said, he who does not have the church as a mother does not have God as his father. Those are strong words. But what about those that say, oh, I, work, I watch church every Sunday morning online? I'd ask them, who are you accountable to? When was the last time you talked to that pastor? Um, I talked to Pastor Tim probably too much. Send emails through the week. I'll send texts. I'll hear something on a podcast. Oh, what do you think about this? Um I some okay. there are a lot of celebrity pastors to be fair and, and I'm throwing out good names. Votie Bauckham Alistair Bay, Paul Washer Steve Lawson. Those are just a few names. If someone were to ask you, and I'd like some input here who is your favorite theologian? He's sitting at this table. Your first answer, immediately, should be your pastor. That should be your sounding board. And, and um, so uh, that is an important part of the local church. I also heard a quote this week. I hope I can do this justice in the explanation of it. The church is the only ordained institution in heaven and on earth. Ever since i heard that, I've been thinking about it. And it's good to think about this on, on a regular basis. When we gather on a Sunday morning, we are worshiping God just as the angels are worshiping God. There's a correlation there, and that's not an accident. So, if you're having a hard time getting up Sunday morning and you're fixing breakfast, it's like, you know, it'd be easier just to turn on Trinity Baptist on on Facebook and, and just just watch the service. I'll even sing with the songs. I can sing more boldly at home than I do sitting, sitting next to people. <clears throat> Think, I'm going to be singing just as the angels are singing. There's a, a worship... And and I'm worshiping a holy God that way. As imperfect as our worship here on earth is, it is still a picture of the worship we will experience in heaven. The church is where God's word is preached and proclaimed. Missionaries are sent from church. Evangelism is dead without the church. So, should we hold the church in high regard? I think we can't hold it high enough. So our church needs to be biblical, not traditional. There are some tough teachings for today's world in the books we're going to be studying in the next few months. And we need to remember that we are to be biblical and not rest on our own understanding. Because some of these are controversial. Even today, there's a huge denomination that we would closely recognize ourselves with that is going to be having a convention here in a couple weeks that is having some trouble because because they are instituting some things that are against something in Timothy. So um, that's something to think about. Uh, two things. Identify the local... Yes? Oh, I didn't
1: want to oh no, please do part of what's going on, I think we are confused what a church is, It's not just the listening to teaching and preaching, it's not just the singing of God's praises, but also that fellowship element is like really essential. I mean, honestly, you could probably listen better, I mean, I, mean, I know you could listen to better sermons than mine, and you could probably listen to better music than ours, but you're, you simply can't get the spiritual fellowship aspect through Facebook or something like that, and that is, is an essential without which you don't really have a local church. You know, what you're, Again, it's more than just watching a TV show um, and, and it kind of prompts me to ask, you know, are we fellowshipping? Like, you know, because it is easy just to kind of come, show up, sing songs, and get out of here as fast as you can without actually opening up your life and enjoying that kind of spiritual fellowship. But that, again, is part of what makes a church a church. Yes.
0: It happens more often than not that we get out of family growth group and I'll turn the man over. She'll even turn me in. I'm so thankful for my church family. And I had that thought after midnight breakfast, and and you know those are the times that you're able to that fellowship that you have close. We're a family. We aren't just friends that come in every Sunday morning. So two things identify the local church in in the text here. What are they? Number one, sound doctrine. Paul wanted to ensure that Christ was. Properly preached. So let's stop and think about Timothy's job here. Let's use our sanctified imagination. We've all gathered in someone's house. It's the first century. We just got done singing the psalter, and our pastor Timothy. Okay, not so much imagination there, but our pastor Timothy stands before us, and he says, "Open your Bible to the Book of Revelation." And everyone. <coughs> Um if I had sound effects up here I as I wrote this I heard a like a record scratching. Wait, that's not what happened. He didn't have the New Testament to preach from. So Tim, so Paul wanted Timothy to preach Christ from the Old Testament. And Christ is in the Old Testament throughout the Old Testament. Um Paul knows the importance of sound doctrine bring, being taught to this bride. Also, uh, I was all, hmm, my language, um, or grammar, I want to make a comment here on how important knowing your theology is. Uh, Paul emphasized theology in everything. So I think it's important there. But let's give an, an example of forming our worldview around your theology. Notice the order that was in. Your theology comes first, and then your worldview is formed around that. So let's just look at one doctrine and kind of see how, how our Mind should go around that. Can anyone think of of something today that is in direct opposition to the doctrine of (coughs) immoderate, the image of God? Can anyone think of anything in the news today or anything like that, Christy? Yeah, like
1: transgender.
0: Transgenderism, yes. The abortion, the whole debacle going on the baby in the womb is created in the image of God I read something just this morning that a a medical journal said the second the sperm breaks the egg the chromosomes are mixed and it's there there's no doubt about that transgenderism I wanted to go a little deep on this but I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole but when a baby is born It's created in the image when the baby conceived. It's in the image of God. And those chromosomes I just mentioned are set in place and they are either XX or XY. There's another doctrine that both of these violate, the sovereignty of God. Martin Luther said, It is, then, fundamentally necessary and wholesome For Christians to know that God foreknows nothing contingently, but that he foresees, purposes, and does all things according to his own immutable, eternal, and infallible will. With that in mind, if you try to convince people that, that you have different chromosomes than you were born with, then you're denying the sovereignty of God. If you're killing a baby in the womb or one that doesn't get talked about very much, volunteering to help someone in their life because they're sick, they're going to be lonely without their wife. I heard, I want to say the number was 64 couples in Norway have ended their lives together on purpose just so they wouldn't have to be alone. And the world goes, oh, it's such a sweet thought. But God has set it in place for us to live out our lives and are we going to die a painful death of cancer? Maybe. Am I going to have a brain aneurysm standing in front of you and keel over? Maybe. But that's the will of God. It's not for me to step in and try to to change that. Um, I would submit that if you deny God's sovereignty, you're denying God. Uh, Some of these um, gay pastors I would question that as well uh, I think most people, even the unbelievers know the Ten Commandments I think a lot of unbelievers know the Ten Commandments and this thought of, of denying the sovereignty of God is, a, is denying the first First Commandments the first two easily Paul knew the massive implications of getting doctrine and theology right. So the second thing he wanted to get, and I'm not going to go as deep on this, is correct conduct. Correct conduct. Paul knew how the church was to be conducted. This isn't just the personal conduct of those leading the church, which we will get into. Maybe not today, but we will get into it but the business of the church and its leaders, how the business of the church and its leaders were to be carried out. There's four key words Paul uses. Mm -hmm. Doctrine was used eight times. Doctrine was used eight times. Godliness occurs eight times. Teach and teacher occurs seven times. And good, which we see that all the way back in Genesis. What did God, God proclaimed his creation. This is good. Good occurs 22 times in this book. So we start to get into the salutation. We tend to run right through these salutations. And it's easy. It makes a lot of sense because we hear it in all all epistles. I like to take a little bit of time to look into this common uh, thing here. Let's remember the salutation didn't appear in the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul wanted to get down to having some stern words with them, and Kevin covered Galatians for us a couple years ago, and it's on Sermon Audio. I saw it the other day, so uh, you can hear that there. Uh, the salutation is also different here in the pastoral epistles
1: of course it's different. As
0: I mentioned, the letters are being written to a personal person. It's not being written to a group of people. So, I asked the other gentleman in in our teaching rotation here, how deeply they were thinking about going into things. And I kind of pictured a plane flying over. Are we going to go through the thick grasses and cut cut down and and get deep into it? Or are we going to take a 50,000 foot flyover? Well, if we go 50,000 feet, we're going to miss a lot. But it's Sunday school, it's not a sermon, so we aren't going to go in with a machete cutting through the, the deep grasses. So um, uh, let's take about a twenty-five or 30,000 foot flyover and then go back over. We spend a lot of time in just two verses of 1 Timothy. Let's count them quickly. Paul, apostle. Christ Jesus, command, God, Savior, hope, grace, mercy, peace, God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. That would be 12 weeks worth of lessons. And we could do a lesson on each and every one of those. But I'll leave that to Tim when he decides to go through 1 Timothy in sermons. So let's start out. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Spend a, a minute or two with this word apostle. What's a good synonym for the word apostle? Can anyone think of a good word that's, that is, means the same as, as apostle? Ambassador. Here, Paul's declaring himself an apostle, an ambassador. When we hire an ambassador, or we elect, or however we choose ambassadors today, Um, they go to another country. They can enter into treaties on behalf of this country. There is an authority that's there. And uh, Paul's speaking to Timothy on that authority, and that's what he's saying. Paul's credentials are unquestionable. And we can get into those by going through so many different scriptures. Paul lined out on the Apostle Christ. But I was a chief among sinners. He he. The, at Stephen's stonings, the cloaks were laid at his feet. as people stoned Stephen. The first martyr of the church, Paul was there. Yet, he is still an Apostle of Christ. After this was in a sermon I heard a good pastor preach this. So Paul was knocked on his keister on his way to, on his way to Damascus that day, Figured and literally. So uh, Paul had these from, from two different sources. It's by command of God, our Savior. Where did the authority come from? There's two words are God, the Savior. God the Savior. Our Savior appears six times in the pastoral epistles. And is ascribed both to God and Jesus. When When it speaks of God, it speaks of the will of God. And when it references Jesus, it's referencing the works of Jesus. This is one of my favorite doctrines to listen to in sermons. And I'm going to break it up a little bit. I hope it comes through. It's the already and the not yet. God set his will in place from the beginning of time. It was already in place. And so it's here till the end of time. There's the not yet. And there's those who who are not yet to come to Christ. God's, God's will is that they will... I'm finishing up. Okay. <laughs> but um nothing's gonna change that already. So throughout the Old Testament, God was their salvation. All through Psalms, he was being proclaimed as their Savior. He's being proclaimed. Um, and on this side of the cross, we know that God the Father has willed our salvation. Yet on this side of the cross, we know that God is the Son and our Hope.
1: Yes. I was just wondering, why? If I have my facts right, like it's typically Christ our Savior you know, if you look at the entire New Testament. Mm-hmm. But there does seem to be a special emphasis in the pastoral epistles on God our Savior. You know, It seems like it calls God our Savior to that more than the rest of the New Testament. Any idea why?
0: I think it's because on that um, they, had, <laughs> they only have the Old Testament to go from And so through Psalms and in Exodus, God was their Savior. They proclaimed, they didn't know that Jesus was their Savior. Now, we know it's the blood of Christ and it's his atoning sacrifice, but they only knew that God would save them from this. Or, you know, David would would pray to, to God, you know, he prayed to God before his, his uh, encounter with Goliath, you know, and I
1: think that, does that make sense? Um, I mean a little bit. If you compare, say, Ephesians, Colossians, I mean they're also before the completion of the Bible, but sure. there are plenty of references to Christ, our Savior, in those books. I'm just curious, is there something unique going on in the pastoral epistles that wants us to focus in more on God as our Savior you know, in a way it's not a huge deal because so we believe that both God mm-hmm. and the Son are involved in our salvation. Right. But this one, I just wanted to you know, I, I honestly don't know the answer to this. Why does it seem like pastoral epistles do put more stress on God as our Savior than Jesus as our Savior? Which is kind of like the rest of the New Testament,
0: right? It's a good question. It's a good question, and I didn't think you know the other epistles were written were written roughly around the same time. I think that it could just be like a recognition of the fact that God is our Savior, but then how it says Christ Jesus our hope, like the way that we will know God our Savior is through Jesus, is who redeems us, and then that's our hope. That's the way I read it, Tim. So I don't know, like that might not be a super education educated answer, but that's kind of how I see it.
1: Yeah, no, that's totally true, and I don't disagree with any of that, but I'm just curious, is there some, re- you know, because the pastoral business are unique, and they're individuals, I mean, it's possible that maybe Timothy needed to do this for some reason, you know, I'm just kind of guessing here, but, uh, you know, when you see a unique emphasis in a book or a collection of books, you kind of wonder why, why? Um, just wondering. Oh, no, no. It's a,
0: like I said, it's a good question. So then we move on, as Chrissy said, and of Christ Jesus our hope. So let's take a little in-depth look into the word of hope. Um, the word hope is not what we think of, as in today. Um, today, I hope that they Red win their game. There's hope, you know. Um, we hope something happens. Biblical hope is um, biblical hope is something that is going to happen, and it's a it's a hope in Christ. It is the work of it is the work of Christ that saves sinners. Work of Christ that saves sinners. Christ came as the incarnate God and saved a sinless. And lived a sinless life and hung on the cross in our stead. This is also a part of the already. He's already hung on the cross. He's already sacrificed himself for our sins. But point, but Paul points out that Christ is our hope. There's our not yet. He's our hope. We can look forward to the hope of Christ. Christ is our hope of glory. We see that in Colossians 1.27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles of along the riches and the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is the guarantor of all of God's promises. This hope in Christ is a fact. It is in Christ that our hope is placed. Does anyone remember the old hymn lyrics? My hope is based on nothing than Jesus Christ His righteousness. I recently saw uh, Paul Washer, and I'm not going to get this quote right because I looked looked and looked and looked for it, but I couldn't find it. We are not just presented sinless before the Father. We had the radiant, white, clean, perfect robes of Christ to cover us. Then it goes on to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul was a mentor to Timothy. Timothy was first introduced to us in Acts 16. And Paul spent a lot of time with Timothy. And I think we may get into later Timothy's personality and demeanor. You picture Timothy, at least I always have until this last week of study. You picture Timothy, this bold man that stands before the church and and proclaim. He was a timid man. And Paul needed to encourage him and encourage him every chance he had to build him up. Uh, I think there was also a familiarity that he had with uh, Timothy because of their upbringing. Timothy had a, a devout Jewish mother and a Greek father, just like Paul. Um, later on, we see that uh, Paul circumcised Timothy so that so that he could be, you know, so he could relate better to the to the Jews. Um, also, talking about his personality, it's near the end of 2 Timothy. Paul encourages Timothy to stand up and be strong. So, it's obvious that Paul led Timothy to Christ. Think about the person that led you to Christ. Is there a certain person, even if it wasn't a sitting down, opening the scripture kind of thing, but they were an influence in your life. I didn't think about it until just now. My first grade teacher, Virginia Pugsley, her, her, did you know her? Oh, okay. Her husband was my dad's principal, so they were family friends. And she was a wonderful guy. She loved butterflies because she saw a picture of the resurrection of butterflies. I saw her life in it kind of formed, you know, now if she was just my first grade teacher it, it wouldn't have been, but she was a family friend and and everything. She went home to glory this week. I think that be one reason it popped into my head. Um, but you you look at someone that has led you to Christ or someone that's been an influence and you hold them up. And that's how Timothy was with Paul. He, he held him up and, and saw him as a mentor. So uh, there's something interesting about this father-son relationship I never thought of before. Timothy's the one caring for Paul. Paul's asked later, he said, send me my cloak. Bring me my cloak and my scrolls. I did just send me. To bring it means that, Timothy, you're coming with him. <laughs> I want you to do this. And, and Timothy was was you know, caring for Paul in these final years. That doesn't diminish the love that Paul has for Timothy.
1: I may run out early, but it's okay. Because I can, yes. Well, on that point, it's interesting to think about how even though their age difference was so great. Um, you know, we think Paul is probably 25, 30 years older than Timothy. Uh, they were so uh, effective uh, as co-workers, you know, we, we often think like, you know, our, our closest co has got to be within, like, you know, two or three years of my own age. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong, but also, you know, your closest coworker could be, you know, 30 years older than you, you guys can still work very effectively and fruitfully together. Um, you know, it's just kind of interesting to imagine these guys, say, walking together, you know, down some dusty road and falls literally, like, you know, elderly. Well, Timothy's maybe 30 or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, that's true.
0: That's true. The last we come to grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I started talking to Ben about this because this was exciting when they opened my I always thought grace, mercy, and peace. Oh, that's a sweet thought. Grace, mercy, peace. We know what grace is. We know what mercy is. We know what peace is. So he's just wishing him grace, mercy, and peace a little bit more than that. Does anyone know what an acronym for grace is? Tim already wrote it down. God's
1: riches at Christ's expense.
0: God's riches at Christ's expense. Um, so as Christians, we say and wholly believe that we have salvation by faith through grace. Does anyone know exactly what that means? God has given us our salvation at the cost of his son. We didn't deserve it. There was nothing we had done as a people or have done personally or will done in the future as a people that would merit that salvation. It's important to remember that in the flow of this scripture. Grace is the giving of something we don't deserve. If we ever have to do something to deserve it, different word. If we ever have to do something to merit that grace, it would no longer be grace. Then he goes into mercy. 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 Is also unmerited and undeserved. Mercy is God's withholding that which we richly deserve. Grace is giving, mercy is withholding. If God were not merciful to me and exercised his holy justice, I heard justice is. The flip side of a coin is not the opposite, but justice is the flip side of a coin of mercy. If God were to exercise his holy justice on me, what I rightfully deserve, I'd be a smoldering ember in front of you. But God, two of the most glorious words in the scripture, isn't it? But God, God. I knew someone put that on a license plate because people would say, What what do you mean but God? He goes, Let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Um but God, just as righteous and just as God is, He's merciful. Thank God. He is merciful. Grace and mercy are closely linked and are wrongfully used interchangeably today. Guilty. Um, Grace is giving what we don't deserve, and mercy is withholding what we do deserve. So there's those two opposite, opposite things, and it's important to remember that. Grace and mercy lead to pure peace. If you have experienced Grace, a giving of something you don't deserve, and the withholding of something you do deserve, you're gonna experience a peace. And we don't just see this in our salvation. In our life, if if we've done something, whatever it does, we get pulled over for speaking. We are doing something wrong. And and he pulls over, he pulls you over, and you're like 20 mile an hour, what was I thinking? And and he goes, you know, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you something that you don't deserve. I'm going to withhold this ticket. <laughs> there's That's a bad analogy. But anyway, there's, there's things that happen in our life, but when that happens, that pit in your stomach, I've been pulled over several times that pit in your stomach you get when the flashing lights are going and the sirens and then all of a sudden when he goes just be careful oh. we get this with our salvation we have been given something we didn't deserve we got our salvation but it withheld the mercy withheld what we did deserve those flow in a fountain to peace these aren't just words, and we know Paul never just threw words on on parchment, as we said earlier. He didn't. There are ands and, and ifs throughout scripture that are there on purpose. You need to look at even the little words. This flows into the grace and mercy flows into a fountain, which is peace. In a crazy and chaotic world we live in. We have a piece that passes all understanding. I've heard unbelievers say, What is it those Christians have? They realize it's not an apathy. You still care about what's going on, but you have a peace about it. Um, in a politically charged atmosphere, know that we have a king that, by the will of God and the work of his son, We have peace. So why would Paul open his letter in this manner? I thought about this and thought about this. I think we need to follow Paul's example more today, maybe more than ever before. He wanted Timothy to be encouraged. Like I said, Timothy wasn't a strong, bold, ready to debate or argue someone. He needed encouragement. And I would dare say, if you could have gotten R.C. Sproul alone in an office and say, could you could you use some encouragement? He would have hardly accepted some encouragement. We need to encourage each other. We talked a little bit too much this morning, didn't Good, we? Uh, ben and I were talking this morning. We need to encourage more each other. But, you have grace and mercy that leads to peace in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
1: <laughs> we
0: need to remind each other that. We know it, especially Sunday morning, we're here celebrating. every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. That's why we're here on Sunday. But we know that, but it's nice to have that encouragement. He wanted Timothy to be encouraged. To meditate on the hope of Christ. To think about the amazing grace that we have in Christ. And to ponder on the great mercy that we have in our Savior. Then remind him that grace and mercy leads to peace. Does anyone have any additions, subtractions, letters to the editor complaints? Let's pray. Precious Heavy Father, we are thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your mercy. Father, we're thankful for your peace. We're thankful that, that you called Paul on that dusty road to Damascus. We're thankful that you called Timothy and, and brought these two men together so many years ago, but they are impacting our life today. And we thankful, we are thankful for this lesson. We pray for uh, the church service, we pray for the worship, and, and the preaching, and Father, we pray for the fellowship as well. We pray it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen.